This podcast is brought to you by OnTrack Studio. Hi, dear valued listener. This is Matthew from the M&M podcast. Before we march into today's episode, Michelle and I just wanted to take a moment to thank you, dear valued listener, for providing some amazing feedback on our first season. We record most of our episodes in the past, and so we've been receiving some really great feedback. And just on that, if any of you out there actually wanted to connect with us, we now have an Instagram account, which is at the letter M A N D. M the podcast. So that's M and M the podcast. And we absolutely welcome you getting into touch with us. Um, give us some word inspiration, tag us in any post that you think might be fun. And we really appreciate all of the support. Now, we hope you enjoy today's episode. G'day, Michelle. G'day, Matthew. Welcome back. It's uh, episode five. Oh my goodness, we've made it to episode five of season two. How exciting. And we're still alive. We're still alive. We're still um, kicking. We're battling a few technical issues as you're about 4,000 kilometres away from me. But hey, that's just the internet in Australia, isn't it, darling? Sometimes I feel every single little binary click and <laughs> code thing between us. It's a long, long, long way. <laughs> but you, we made it back, Michelle, and here we are. We're really excited to uh, have another go at discussing some M words for this episode and um, also discuss my mood and perhaps your moist moment, Michelle. That's it, Matthew. We will try and pack in a um, an exciting and uh, madly malicious, mawkish minge of marvellousness. Oh, wow. You did really well. Dear Valued Listener, I can see Michelle on the video and the strain on her face as she was trying to spit out those M words was akin to when you cramped up on the toilet. Good job, darling. I think you did really well there. My favourite part was minge. Thank you. I got to say, though, I got to say, though, listeners, he's never seen me on the toilet. (laughs) He's guessing right now. He's guessing that's how I look. Matthew, would you like to let us in on one of your groovy words for this yeah, week? Yeah, I will. And I'm going to I'm gonna sort of put a little NB or a little note at the beginning because she said, we've got some exciting words. Well, Michelle, mm-hmm. my first word's not all that exciting. And um, that doesn't mean it's not interesting. It just means for me, when I was looking up this one, I just, the hairs on the back of my arm stayed right where they were. My first word, Michelle, is muck. Oh, Mark, I've got a funny feeling that if you were an aeronautical scientist, the hairs would be sticking up all excited on your arm. Absolutely. Yes, I understand. We're not sciencey here, are we? We are not sciencey, well, particularly Matthew, but I'd like to say if there are any aeronautical engineers, forgive me for the blundering, blithering mess I'm about to make when I talk about Mark. Now, devalued listener, Mark is M-A-C-H. We're not talking about Mark Wahlberg or Mark the footy. We're talking about Mach. I almost want to say it German, like, you know, mach. Mach. Yeah. I agree. But then we spit on our microphones. Okay, mach. All right, bear with me, everyone. Strap yourselves in, literally, because when we travel at mach speed, you need a belt on. Yeah, your face goes a bit funny, doesn't it? Like it's pushing back in the back of your head. It's a dimensionless quantity in fluid dynamics that Michelle represents the ratio of flow velocity past a boundary to the speed of sound. Wah, 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 wah. 
Good Lord, that does sound like maybe it's the first time you've read it out loud. <laughs> Do you know what? I wrote that out and then I rewrote a Matthew version of it because even saying that I went, good Lord, 90% of those words are just too much. What it is is moving faster than the speed of sound, the recording of moving faster than the speed of sound. So are you saying that the number of mark or mocker is the amount of speed over the speed of sound that, that, that is, we're going? That is exactly correct. And I'm going to get even more deep into it now. So put that second belt on as we move further into marks. So why we have marks? Because pilots and physicists and engineers need to have a number to express a vehicle's true airspeed at very high altitudes, at very fast speeds. So the current um, gauge of speed goes up to the speed of sound. Once we get and have passed the speed of sound, the numbers that we use no longer apply because a whole lot of sciencey physics stuff like steps in and that is where the mach came from. So, Do you know whether it's only a airborne vehicle that can go faster than the speed of sound or can a car or another kind of land-based vehicle go faster? I be- no, I believe it can be land-based, but only if it's going through water. So oh. I, I don't think la- like land-based won't work because we've, we've built too much shit that gets in the way, Michelle. So for it to navigate, you know, on the ground and move around that tree and dodge that building and then miss that girl and on her bike, it's going to be too much travelling at Mark. Oh, yeah, and physics and shit, hey. You yeah. Know, like, yeah, friction. Yeah, gotcha. Friction, oh. physics and shit, all of that. But I believe you can do it through water. So when you're travelling – so the, the level of a Mark is based on the, um, the gas that it's moving through. Now, water isn't a gas, therefore it's going to be a lot more difficult for something to travel at Mark speed through water because of – resistance, but I believe that it can be done. Probably not a very high mark, but I believe that it can be done. But good question, Michelle. Love you putting me on the spot like that with a science one. Yes, thank you. Honestly. Sorry, not sorry. (laughs) Okay, now let's talk math. Mm, Mathematics. Mm. Okay, here's the equation for a mark. Michelle, strap your third belt on. Okay, mark equals the letter U above the letter C. So, the letter U, equals the local flow velocity with respect to boundaries. So flow velocity, I guess, meaning speed with respect to boundaries, meaning resistance. So this can be an internal object such as immersed in the flow or an external like being in a channel. So that's what the U stands for above the C. Then the C stands for the speed of sound in medium in which air varies based on the square root, wait for it, of the thermodynamic temperature. Good God, you did really well. Oh, my goodness. I'm just stressed. I don't know that much of it's making sense to me, but I think I'm understanding. So we've got an algebraic 
mm-hmm. calculation, haven't we? We've got it right. We have an algebraic calculation that is determining what the mark is. So the mark basically is the speed with the resist the, re- the speed it travels compared to the resistance above the thermodynamic temperature that it's surrounded by will equal your mark. Now, you're not the only one getting confused. This is the fourth time I've gone through it, and I feel dumber every time I actually try and get through this. T-Valued listener, science and math, not my bag. Not my bag. Never was. nah However, I'm going to keep going because I believe this one does deserve um, the attention because the mark itself, the number, it depends on the temperature of the surrounding gas. So that being the oxygen or that being, I want to say, what else have we got in Carbon dioxide, whatever it is up in the, the layers of our atmosphere, those temperatures that the vehicle is moving through affects very much the flow velocity, meaning the speed that it travels past the speed of sound. So this is built into what the Mach number comes to. Both of those two things are tantamount to getting that number. Jace, I sounded all right then with me. Do you know, tantamount, goodness gracious me, you're pulling out some vocab and all. Um, So is it tantamount to correct to say that you can go faster in colder temperatures? Yes, depending on the type of vehicle. And I'm going to actually, you know what, Michelle, good question, Um, because that will lead me into talking about the different speeds of mark and what um, the vehicles are that can achieve that. But yes, generally. And the only reason being, Michelle, that if you're travelling at mark speed in hot temperature, because because of the friction and the resistance, you're just going to blow up. You know, you need the cooler air to cool off the object that's moving past the speed of sound, which is gathering heat, as you can imagine. It's kind of like this, Michelle. Let me give you a little metaphor. You know, one day you and I go for a walk. Okay, it's a nice balmy spring day, maybe 22 degrees, and we're just walking at our normal temperatures. So our heart rate goes up a little bit. And we might have Mm -hmm. one or two beads of sweat on our forehead, but we're having a conversation, we're enjoying the nature and each other's company, okay? Then compare that to you and me uh, in a Perth summer, so a dry heat at 42 degrees and we're sprinting. Gotcha. Okay, so Big that's difference. huge difference. So our bodies start to really rise in temperature based on the movement and the outside temperature. Oh, my goodness, that was a great metaphor. I'm really impressed. I've yep. got to say I'm really impressed. And Very good. I'm yes, a- and it's making a lot of sense. So thank you. It's either me sweaty or me not sweaty. I'm I'm happy with the with the latter every time. Me, me too, but all based on that outside air temperature. Now, let's talk about where this word came from and the old chappers that put it together. So mach, again, mach is named after a Moravian physicist and philosopher. His name was Ernst Mach. Say that for Ooh, me. I like it. What's his name, Michelle? Ernst Mach. Lovely. Got, now, got Mar- lots of plosives in there. I like it. Now, the word Moravian, right? I'm sure you heard that and you immediately knew where I was talking about and exactly what that word means. And as it's another M word, I thought I'd better quickly just, because I'd <laughs> never heard that word in my life. Uh, Moravian or Moravia is a West Slavic ethnic group from the Czech Republic. Okay. Oh, that's quite specific. All right. Yeah, so old mate uh, Ernst was from uh, the Czech Republic and he was a physicist and a philosopher. And one of his old mates, one of his good buddies, was a, another fellow by the name of Jakob Akrecht. Mm. Oh, 
Oh, another good one. Jakob Akrit. Now, Jakob was an aeronautical engineer. And these two, bo- these two old boys were having a beer one day in 1929. And they were discussing the fact that once things get past a certain speed, that being the speed of sound, because we're not factoring in the temperature in our normal speed settings, something had to change. Because of the dynamics of moving so quickly, you can't just have something go beyond the speed of sound without taking into account the temperature. Because that's when and it's rubbing up against a whole lot of uh, air, mm-hmm. and therefore it's heating up mm-hmm. as it rubs up against that air. Gotcha. That's right. That's right. Mm. And so things fall apart. So these two were having a beer, probably you know in the Czech Republic, going, you know what? And it was it was Ernst Mach who and and his mate Jakob that realised that they can actually come up with that formula, which is M equals U above C. These two blokes put it together. They did the math and they realised that this system of rating speed would indeed work. I wonder if they realised all that time ago that their um, amazing foresight would end up being really critical to NASA and Mm. to the Russians who put people uh, into space, you know, mm. a long time after 1929. That's amazing. Well, I think you would be pretty pretty chuffed, to be honest, because you're creating a whole new measurement system that didn't exist before. Like, the, it did not exist before, namely because we didn't have vehicles that were moving at that speed until around that time. So this is obviously very much a product of the technological revolution. But, um, yeah, I think they would have been pretty chuffed. Um, it was named after him. You know, Michelle? Yeah, for when, saying it. Yeah, and whenever anything's named after you, you sort of dust the dust off your shoulders and go, yes, that was me. It's named after me. That's what, that's a feeling you get, I reckon. That's a feeling. Mm. It is a feeling, not a feeling I, I, know, I, know, I know myself yet, although I hope to one day experience, and experience it. Mm. Um, the other thing too is that they can dust themselves off feeling a little bit clever because um, shaving products also are now named after Ernst. They're not named Ernst shavers though, are they? They're Mark 55 now they're probably up to, I think. Mm. I can't even remember the brand and it wouldn't be appropriate for me to say, but you know what I'm talking about. I'm hoping they paid royalties for his name. I'm hoping they had to actually go to the, you know, maybe the family lineage or whatever and cough up (laughs) some cash. What I want to do now is really quickly run through the mark measurements because there's one, two, three, four, five, six of them. And these are the measurements of the mark that they came up with and they have terms. So the first level of mark is known as subsonic and a subsonic mark level is anything less than 0.8 mark. So that tells you that it's moving faster than the speed of sound, but only up to 0.8 faster, which is... A which sounds like only a little teeny weeny tiny bit That's faster, right. Really. It's a little finger. Yeah. Little finger. Yeah. You're going a little finger faster than... <laughs> little finger faster than Mark. And just to put that into context for you, the Boeing 787 aircraft, which is Boeing's latest and greatest and reaches high speeds, flies at Mark 0.85 when it's at full speed. So that's a passenger jet and that is one of the fastest, you know, uh, airplanes we have at the moment and it only goes up to 0.85. So it's it's considered actually transonic because it's like 0.05 above subsonic, which is less than 0.8. But that's to put it into context for you. Now, the next one up, Madeira, is transonic. 
transonic. Now, transonic mark obviously will be from 0.8 up to mark 1.2. So not a huge increase again, not a huge increase on the previous. And to reach a transonic mark speed, you need wings. So this, this vehicle will need to have wings to propel it forward. Okay. It's a must have, which obviously means that subsonic, the one below, you know, I think cars can actually like, there are probably some cars maybe unmanned that can get up to mark subsonic. And so subsonic is where you're not getting that weird experience as a human where a plane flies over you and then you hear it sound when it's much further away from you. Correct. So that's, that's supersonic, but subsonic is where we don't have that experience. Correct. And so, yes, it makes sense that perhaps that would be the only mark level at which cars could be measured. That's right. Nailed it. Putting my hammer on Thanks. the wall and nailing it for Michelle. She nailed it. Okay, the next <laughs> one up. Because you're a great teacher. Mm, am I, though? The next one up is supersonic. I love this one, supersonic. Supersonic is Mark 1.2 up to Mark 5. So now we're starting to see some increase in this speed, okay? We've only gone, like, little finger up to, like, ring finger, and now we're kind of, like, up to the wrist. We've moved up. Yeah, like a whole hand. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness me. I said hand, not fist, which is a big difference. He's giggling, people. He's giggling. He's giggling and he's blushing. Stop it. What are you doing? Stop. PT 13. You are blushing. Oh my God. Okay. So a supersonic needs to have sharper edges on the wings. It needs to be made of a thin foil uh, material or a thin aluminium material. And it needs to have a moving tail. So a plane that has a tail that can pivot because the tail of the plane obviously is what controls the direction that the plane moves in. And so if it can move. So for example, if you're traveling at supersonic and a hot patch is detected in front of you, it's going to shift into the cooler so it can keep going. Ah, And the thin material is so that we are as light as possible and as slippery as possible, I guess, through through the air. We're continuing on this tangent now. (laughs) Okay, the next one is hypersonic. Now we're starting to talk, okay? Hypersonic is Mark 5 through to Mark 10. Now, this, wow. is, this is the fastest manned aircraft that we've managed to put into speed. So above this, there's no humans involved. And for this, you need small wings. You need a nickel titanium skin and thin again. And you'll go, why, Matthew? Why nickel titanium? Because it stays cool. Okay. It's the coolest. Ah, it's the coolest so it's metal alloy. And it's cool. Yeah. And so even at really high speeds, it's very cool and it doesn't break apart. Okay. It's one of the strongest. I've got a funny feeling that's the same stuff as what's in my dad's hip now. I think that that's the same as medical grade titanium, which is used for replacement limbs. The, well, the good news to that is, Michelle, if he ever travels at Mark 10 on land, <laughs> he won't fall apart. <laughs> Or maybe the rest. I think he's actually, his skeleton might, but his his hip will his stay. hip will be out there running, running real fast. It's okay. I made mark twenty five. Woo! I've left the rest of my body behind, but I won. We love your dad, though. We do. We'll put that out. We there. do. Okay. The next one up, my love, is high hypersonic. High hypersonic. It's like a wave. Hi, hypersonic. This is really getting up there. It's Mark 10 to Mark 25. Okay. So we've started at Mark 0.8, which was subsonic or up to Mark 25. This vehicle requires thermal control and blunt configurations on top of all the things we've already discussed, such as the nickel titanium skin. It needs thermal control because it has to be able to cool itself down. When you get up to Mark 20 to 25, 
you are traveling so fast, it doesn't actually matter what the outside temperature is anymore. Obviously, it needs to remain cool, but it's so fast that it instantly heats up all the gas around it. And if you don't have a system to keep it cool, it's just going to pop right then and there because everything's just too hot. Amazing. Okay. Amazing and frightening. And then very last one is the, it's called a re-entry speed mark. And this is higher than mark 25. And this is the most dangerous, obviously. So it needs an ablative heat shield. Now, Michelle, an ablative heat shield is like a fire blanket to an airplane. So, you know, if you're in a house fire, you put the fire blanket on you, it will protect you as best it can from the heat not the fire, but from the heat, which can melty, melty, skinny skin. But this this, uh, ablative heat shield works the same on an aeroplane and it will protect the actual exoskeleton of the aeroplane or I should say vehicle because it's not not an aeroplane at this point from the heat that it is experiencing when it comes back into re-entry. It needs small to no wings and a blunt shape. So small to no wings, meaning you know, when astronauts do do the re-entry back into our atmosphere, you notice they're never in a craft that looks like an airplane anymore. It looks like a kind of doing my gesture here, people. It's Yes, it's, it's um, like a little bullet really, isn't it? It is, like it, a exactly. Thing. It's like a little bullet that they're sitting in and it's got such ablative heat shields around it because it's coming in. Once you start getting closer towards the Earth's surface, guess what? The temperature rises. Oh, gravity and, yeah, yeah, yeah the exactly. temperature rises. Yeah. So then that's when we need to be really, really careful. Oh, that's it, Michelle. I got through it all with my marks and my subsonics and my transonics and good grief. You did a really good job. And I just want to make the point that it's pretty astounding that anything that is made by humans can actually reach the speed of sound, mm. let alone um, breach speed of sound. Mm. Sound is a way. It is not a, a tactile yep. material. That's right. And yet we're able to put tactile materials in human beings mm-hmm. up, up to a speed which indeed breaks it, overtakes the sound near it. And if you think about, you know, and we're not going down this rabbit hole because it's 10 hours of conversation and, and just too dirty, but if you think about um, how all of this was done in the last 150, 200 years compared to our 60,000-year history, you know, the technological revolution and the ability of human beings in such a short amount of time to create technology that is just so incredibly fantastic versus the nature of this earth, it's actually mind-blowing, mind-blowing. And as we, Yeah, and as we said before, the fact that a, a, a couple of dudes could work out many, you know, decades before um, – space travel, they could work out a um, piece of algebra that was going to make our understanding greater Mm. and our future design better. Mm. Uh, It's just astounding, really. It's extraordinary to think that that equation preceded the development of the types of material that would be able to go through the Earth's atmosphere. Yeah, absolutely. So incredible. Okay, Michelle, I'm really glad you liked our little exploration into Mark. And dear valued listener, I apologise for my science ways, but I'm actually rising to the challenge, if you will. Not at Mark's speed, but I'm rising to the challenge. Now, Michelle, what have you got for us this week? I've got a little bit of geography for us this week. I'm going to talk to you about Malacca, which used to be spelt M-A-L-A-C-C-A and is a state within Malaysia, which is another great word because it's an M word. Mm. So Malacca is on the strait 
of Malacca, as one would probably assume it would be. Mm-hmm. This is a 1,644 square kilometre state of Malaysia, and it's extraordinarily important to Malaysia because of its location on the Strait of Malacca, which is the uh, shortest route from Indonesia and from Malaysia to the Far East. Mm. So Malacca was formerly, as I said, spelt M-A-L-A-C-C-A. Now, the spelling of the state has only recently changed in 2017 at the behest of the Malaysian government. And they put out um, a decree that the word should be spelt M-E-L-A-K-A, which is no longer the anglicised version of the word. Oh, I love that. So the city was, isn't it great? So it's a slow and steady reclaiming, I guess, reclamation of the way that things should be spelt Mm. in Bahasa and et cetera. So on the Strait of Malacca, and it's right at the mouth of what is quite a sluggish river called the Malacca River. The city was founded about 1400 when, and you're going to have to excuse my pronunciations, please, of some of these beautiful Asian names, which I'm not particularly good on. So in 1400, Paramasavara, the ruler of Tumasik, which is now Singapore, fled from the forces of the Javanese kingdom of Majapahit and found refuge in the city of Malacca. Wow. It was then just a small fishing village. You did really well with those words and names. I'm just going to give you a round of applause here because I couldn't even, your lips were doing things that were just giving me something. Sorry, keep going with your story. He fled there and fishing village. Thank you so much. This this too from an Asian speaker, so I am quite quite flattered by that. Thank you. There he founded the Malay Kingdom, the kings of which who were aided by the Chinese and that's an important point for later the kings of which extended their power over the peninsula. Now, the peninsula goes obviously right out to the Strait of Malacca and it was seen at that early stage right back in the 1400s. This strategically is a pretty good spot for us to focus on mm-hmm. because we're going to be, get, be able to get our food and other goods to and from Malaysia this way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So after the kingdom had been set up, the port then became a major stopping place for traders to replenish their food supplies and obtain the fresh water that they'd need from beautiful hill springs. So geographically and from a landscape point of view, this is a pretty gorgeous place. Now, up until 1511, the place was under Malay rule, under the Sultanate However, in 1511, and please again excuse my pronunciation of a Portuguese name, Alfonso de Albuquerque, the Viceroy of the Portuguese Indies, conquered Malacca. So this is the first time that it falls to non-Asian people. Mm -hmm. During the 16th century, Malacca developed into the most important trading port in Southeast Asia. Oh, wow. And really it then retained that position for centuries. So the Indian, Arab and European merchants regularly regularly visited there. So this was the way that Malaysian culture was then being enriched and also simultaneously, I guess, destroyed by visits from across the world and the impact of those merchants on the land and on the people of Malaysia. The Portuguese realised enormous profits 
from the especially lucrative spice trade. Now, we all know about the spice trade, the spice wars. My mum absolutely guarantees that she would have fought for cinnamon, and so would I, I reckon. Cinnamon and pepper in particular, I would have um, have fought for. No, not cinnamon. No, darling. No, you don't think? Oh, cinnamon is so delicious. What would be, what would you fight for? For spices, look, definitely pepper and cayenne pepper in particular. But cinnamon to me, it tastes um, like it gives me vibes of chai latte and chai latte I want to smack out of any bitch's hand and go drink a real freaking coffee. I just, it tastes dirty. This is something, dear listener, that I didn't know about, Matthew, and we're going to need to talk about it because I (laughs) am partial to a chai latte, my love. I hate them. Very, 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 very partial. No, I don't like it. See, chai latte to me is those people that stand in the line and go, I'll have a chai latte with oat and I just want to throttle them. I just I must say I feel like a distinct wanker every time I say, can I have a chai latte on soy? (laughs) I know. You may be going to knock this out of my hand any day now, so I'll remember to order something really hard up like just a long black. Long black, Next time I'm with you. Long black, yeah. Okay. So no, no to cinnamon, yes to pepper, and the Portuguese keep going. And the Portuguese. So the Portuguese then lost the rule of Malacca to the Dutch in 1641. Right. And I'm going to interject here. Is that because at this stage the Dutch conquered Indonesia? Yeah, they were on their rampage. Now, what I haven't actually covered and (laughs) I should have is that Malaysia and Indonesia are really, really close together. Yeah, they are. And they're probably at one of the closest points between them at Malacca. So, yes, very much a part of what was a Dutch conquering undertaking, which included many locations near Indonesia, including Australia, as mm. we know. Yep, yep, yep. So the Dutch were in charge from 1641 right through to when, of course, the Brits arrived in 1795. Mm-hmm. So 1788 they came to Australia, 1795 they thought they might have a go at Malaysia. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, woof, everything changes dramatically as it always does under colonial rule mm-hmm. and the rivalry was finally settled in favour of the British by the Anglo-Dutch Treaty of London in 1824. Now, the reason that I've taken you through what might have seemed like quite detailed history is that one of the beautiful outcomes of all of this conquering and taking and da, 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 I want it, I want it, I want it, is that everybody built stuff. Mm. And when people build stuff in a place like Malacca, it ends up being given world heritage status. Oh. And the reason this place is a world heritage tourist destination and indeed a place that needs to be carefully protected is the incredible range of architecture in this place. So, of course, if you're talking right back to 1512 when the Portuguese were in charge, you now still in Malacca have the ruins Mm. of the original fortress, which is called Afamosa Fortress. Afamosa. It sounds like a dessert. Afamosa, which sounds a lot like a samosa, really, doesn't it? Yes, my goodness. (laughs) It makes me hungry and deserty all at the same time. Afamosa. A famosa, exactly, and a little bit thirsty too, thank you. So then we go right through to the 17th century, so that's mm-hmm. the 1600s. Mm-hmm. You've got Bukit China Cemetery, which is the largest pre-modern Chinese cemetery outside China. Wow. Have a guess at how many graves there might be in there if it's the largest outside China. Oh, 
never like this game when people say, how old do you think I am? I'll give it a go. I know. It's, it's just a, how long is a piece of string really, I'm but gonna, give it a go. I'm going to say, I'm going to get really specific on you and I'm going to say 58,721. That's beautiful. And it's about half and half again. So it's about quarter of what you just said. There's 12,500 graves there. Oh, but so it's still a really significant cemetery. And, and when you think about the loss of life mm. at long, long, long time ago, probably, you know, maybe human life wasn't worth quite what it's seen yes. to be worth now. Yep. So perhaps there's actually lots and lots more people who are buried who don't have graves marking mm. their loss. Wow. Um, then we go through to 1645. These are really long ago dates, aren't they? This They're is hard for years. Caucasian Australians to understand, I reckon. Mm-hmm. Right back in 1645, we've got the oldest Chinese temple in Malacca, and it's called the Cheng Hun Teng Temple. Then we come right through to 1741 and we're suddenly looking more Christian. We've got Christ Church, which is the oldest functioning Protestant church in Malacca. And so the list goes on. There are some absolutely beautiful examples of very, very aged architecture butting right up against less aged or more contemporary architecture. Mm. And I think that it's a lovely way for us in our current times to sort of chart the impact of religion Mm. and the impact of politics on a landscape, on a people and on a place. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. And I think I've been to a lot of um, nations where, you know, they've been conquered and 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 it's a really incredible mix of the the ebb and flow of history as these different cultures permeate the culture and, and lay their um, culturally specific subtext and context to the place. And it's stunning, you know, it's really, it's so really true. It's so true. And the idea of something permeating a place, mm. that lovely word you've just used, is a really nice way for me to segue into some of the geology and the geography of the place. Mm-hmm. So the reason that Malacca's um, importance to international trade declined was because the bloody thing silted up. So the, the Malacca estuary has been heavily silted and it would be an interesting thing to look to why, mm-hmm. and I've not gone into too much detail, but I'd imagine that some farming practices and some property development and land development practices might have had something to do with it. Does that mean, Michelle, that it's no longer a thoroughfare? Like do you mean that the importance of the strait back in the day and for centuries of having that point of being able to nip through with your your goodies, your spices, but not your bloody cinnamon, is that no longer, because of the silt, are you saying that that's no longer, like you can go on horse and cart now or you can drive your car through rather than sail? It's a really, really good question and the answer to it is quite interesting. The answer is that, yes, you can still get through no problem, but that the silting on either side has created a situation where harbour facilities are limited to offshore anchorage. You can't actually go right in and anchor your great big Vessel. Tug or your, your big vessel is good word. Thank you. I was going to embarrass myself then. Uh, you can't take your great big vessel in to stick it right on the shore. Now, the river's mouth, and this is a beautiful thing about engineering. I love the, the cleverness of humans. 
humans recognised that this was going to be a bloody big problem. And so what they've done is created groins. Now, that's spelt G-R-O-Y-N-E-S. Are you sure it's spelt with a Y? Because I don't mind a groin. <laughs> those kinds of groins and this kind of groins far different. If those kinds of groins silted up, I'd be worried. Oh, well, I've seen I certainly I've, wouldn't be going near one. I've seen a few. Let's move on. So the river's mouth is now protected by these groins and really it's just a, a groin is a low wall mm. in within a marine environment mm-hmm. and they project out for 0.5 of a mile, which is about 0.8 of a kilometre. So Malaga remains significant as an exporter of rubber from its hinterland mm, and importantly for Australia, it's an importer of sugar and rice. Rice is not so big a deal here, but we've still got huge tracts of Australian land under sugarcane. Mm, we do. So, yeah, and so I would hope that some of the import is happening from Australia, uh, but what we're finding too in Australia, just as an aside, is that cane land is slowly but surely being taken off the land mm. because of acknowledged impacts like on the Great Barrier Reef of things like uh, fertiliser. So there you go. That's a little packaged up talk about Melaka, not Malaka. And, you know, back in when I was a teenager, I used to have some, I think it was Greek friends, and they used to talk about their sisters and go, ah, Malaka. So I'll just leave, ah, I'll just leave Very good. There. Thank you for covering that for me because I've also got some uh, Ukrainian friends who use the same term. And apparently it's a, a derisive term used to really call someone a whore. Now, mm. we don't usually use the term whore on no, this podcast. No, last episode, I think we said it maybe once or half a time. Maybe I said ho. Yeah. Do go back there, listener, to have a little a little, a little um, enjoy of that last podcast. What you'll find is that the word whore did feature <laughs> at somewhat surprising regularity. I love whores. Um, <laughs> I think that you would love Malay people and Malaccan people in particular because mm. those people like you are multilingual. Mm. So most people are of a mixed ethnicity that includes Barber Chinese together with Malay, Portuguese and Dutch. Oh, gorgeous. And I'm sure I'm sure there's a sprinkling of Indo in there as well. I'm sure there must be some, you know, Indo heritage because they are so close. Without a doubt, without a doubt. And um, the the similarities between the religions that are practised in both countries I think also would indicate that there'd be plenty of... Um, uh, plenty of intermarriage between mm-hmm. Malaysia and Indonesia. Yeah. Absolutely. I have been to Malaysia um, a couple of times and I really loved it. It's very tropical, very hot, but a beautiful little country. But I haven't been to Malacca. M- Malacca. Malacca. Have you been to, um, oh, that's good. Mela- yeah, Malacca. So to, to, I think we emphasize the M-E. Yeah. Been to Kuala Lumpur? I have. I've been to Kuala Lumpur. That's how I said Kuala Lumpur. Oh, that's beautiful. And see, you've got that gorgeous Asian intonation at the end there, Lumpur, that I can't get. I'd really need to. But you know what, Michelle, you and I are going to have to go to Melaka together because I would like to be arm in arm with you as we look at the ruins of the Portuguese 1512, you know, um, space where they, well, I guess, slaughtered. Um, well, exactly, and and I think that we'd love too to get our teeth into some of the local culture and the fact mm. that the fact that it is such an admixture of ethnicities. I think would be a huge 
a huge learning yeah, experience for absolutely. little Aussies. Yeah. A melting pot, if you will. Michelle, look, we've actually talked so much about mach and melaka that we're not going to have time today to touch on my mood and moist moment. But, dear valued listener, I'm going to give you a little hint um, as to episode six, what my mood is, and maybe Michelle can shed some light on what's making her moist. I'm getting political. <gasps> Yep. You? You heard it here first, and I can't touch it this episode because there's quite a few things I want to cover off on, but I am moody AF, and it's a little political. That's mine. What's making you moist next episode, Michelle? Well, I just slipped off the edge of my chair because I'm so excited to hear more about your political mood. I'm very excited about that. What's making me moist is family, both biological family and logical family. I love it. And I shall fill in the dots to that more next time we chat. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking us down the Moluccan Strait and giving us insight into the fact that you're a chai, soy chai latte yuppie that I just don't think I'll ever see you in the same light again, but I appreciated the Melaka chat. I'm begging for forgiveness here, people. I may achieve it or I might just have my chai latte knocked out of my hand next time I order one with Matthew around. Or just tip it straight on me and, you know, tell me to get effed. Um, And hopefully, dear valued listener and Michelle are like you liked my mach. Love your mach. Thank you very much, Ernst and Jacob. All right, Michelle. We shall see you all next week. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye.